Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. Again, I am bringing a short series of Advent-themed messages building up to Christmas. And last week we took a look at Mary, the mother of Jesus. Courtney blessed us with a beautiful, beautiful rendition of Mary, Did You Know? And we sort of used that as a springboard to talk about what Mary actually did know. And uh, my conclusion was that there were almost certainly a lot of things that she did not know, especially regarding the specifics of the song. But the point was she did know enough to obey God and to play the part that God had ordained for her in bringing the Messiah to the world. And in that, she still serves as a wonderful example to us. Uh, I do appreciate the feedback I got on that message, got a lot of positive feedback on that message, and I always appreciate hearing and knowing when something resonates with you like that. So if you missed it, if you weren't here last week and haven't had a chance to check it out, go online, check that message out. I think you'll be blessed. But today, I'm going to talk about uh, hope on the horizon, and then next week, I'll be talking about celebrating in the midst of heartache. These two messages have some similarities, uh, but it's my prayer that I'll be able to effectively communicate the differences that, it, that are at the center of them. Um, and I'm going to start out in kind of a weird place. I was flipping through, recently, flipping through one of my favorite biographies. It is a biography of Winston Churchill written by William Manchester. I don't know how many Churchill fans we have in here. Anybody? Two? Okay, okay. Five or six or eight, maybe. Uh, and there, of course, there are dozens, probably hundreds of biographies on Churchill. But Manchester is a really, was a really gifted writer. And I discovered this, uh, it was at the time, the first two volumes of a three-volume biography. And I devoured them. This was nearly 30 years ago. And I went looking for the third volume and couldn't find it, finding out it hadn't been written yet. And so every year I would, you know, I'd just be, well, when's that Manchester book coming out? And he got sick and he had to take a break and he wrote another book. And I'm like, what are you doing wasting time writing this one? Get back on the Churchill thing. And he started writing again and he died about 200 pages into it and somebody else finished it. All that to say the third volume isn't as good as the first two and it has nothing to do with this sermon. I <laughs> But those first two volumes are absolute gold. If, you, uh, if you're a reader, and especially a reader of biographies, I urge you to check them out. Um, Churchill was one of those guys, uh, they're, they're rare in history, but not so rare we haven't heard of them, who was convinced at an er, from an early, early age of his uh, destiny, uh, that he was destined to be a great man. I've told stories about him before, and again, this is kind of apropos of nothing, but once I get started, it's hard to shut me off on this. He would uh, treat his servants like trash sometimes, uh, people, his secretaries, people who worked for them. He just was borderline abusive. And uh, one of them finally stood up to him and just kind of went off on him in front of other people, and he didn't get fired. But Churchill confronted him the next day and just kind of, he was pouting. He said, you were very rude to me, you know. And the guy said, well, you were rude to me. And Churchill said, yes, but I'm a great man. <laughs> and he was, it was without a trace of irony. It's like, I have a right to treat you rudely because I'm a great man. But he was a great man. 
And if uh, he, you know, he enjoyed some early political success and he did not shy away from uh, the press, you know, he was a self-promoter. Uh, and he, like I said, he had some early political success. But if, uh, like most people, all you know about Churchill is that he was the leader of England during World War II, you might find it interesting to know that between his early successes in, in politics and the time he became prime minister, he spent over 10 years as an absolute outcast. He was way out in the political wilderness. And the most fascinating uh, part of this biography of these three volumes is the second one that was all about his life during that time in the wilderness. He was out of politics, but he was still very well connected. He had a lot of friends in high places, and he was enormously popular abroad. He was more popular here in the United States during that time than he was in Great Britain. And uh, he... Um, he still had some friends and was popular in certain circles of British society. He had sources, and he read practically everything. And the quote that grabbed me and sort of launched me into the theme of this message, uh, when I first read this book, and this is from 1931, said this, he continued to follow developing situations at home and abroad. Each morning, he and Clementine, his wife, carefully read new newspapers, and sent notes to each other via servants on significant items. One consequence of this was that Churchill became the first statesman in England to discover that for the second time in a generation, a strange light had appeared and was growing upon the map of Europe. This is 1931, and Manchester here is writing, of course, about the fact that Churchill was among the first people in the world to recognize the threat posed by Hitler and Germany. And this, he was so persuaded of this that he began to write and speak and warn people. Uh, tried to warn his country and, and then the world, but he was mostly ignored. He was absolutely ignored by the people in Great Britain who were actually in a position to do something about it. And there's a lot of history uh, behind that. And I mentioned this, uh, you know, they, they ignored him right up till the moment it was almost too late. And I mentioned all of this for a couple of reasons. One is that we should walk wisely and be able to discern the times. It doesn't do us any good to keep our heads in the sand. Uh, this, what Churchill was doing, it was kind of see something, say something on the world stage. Now, for better or for worse, you and I live in a time where if anybody sees something and has an idea, they can immediately reach the whole world. Now, they might not. They might not get the attention, but the capability is there for somebody just to make a YouTube video, get it out there, and then once it becomes viral, anybody with any idea, whether it's legitimate or not, can get a following. And so we have conspiracy theories and crackpot theories, and we have legitimate people, legitimate warnings and concerns being drowned out in some of that mess. But that's also a reason that I believe it's significant uh, that Jesus came when he did in history. We need, it's important to remember the setting of his birth and ministry. Those to whom the gospel was first entrusted didn't have access to the whole world immediately. They had to preach the truth 
in a society and a community that was geared to be hostile toward them. But they knew it was the truth, so they preached it anyway. And their preaching was heard and heeded and believed, ultimately, because of the power of the Holy Spirit, because of signs and wonders and healings, not because of their instant worldwide Internet celebrity. Now, backing up a bit, what Churchill saw, even though uh, I, I like Manchester's wording here, a strange light had appeared and was growing on the map of Europe. What he saw, though, was dark and threatening. And he saw his job uh, as warning people and to wake them up and make them aware of this existential threat that was posed to the world. And we could, if we had time and we were interested and we weren't going somewhere completely different, we could, we could make sense of why he was ignored. It really did make a lot of sense considering the time. But they were so disinclined to listen, him, listen to him that it had to have been frustrating. Uh, but the point that I'm making this morning is really just latching on to that idea of seeing something on the horizon, which was years away from being a manifested threat in this case. But it's different for us because I'm talking about a light on the horizon that is the light of hope. There were people who were living... Uh, it, let's, let's start uh, with the early church. They were living uh, under the thumb of Rome. Actually, go before the early church. At the time of Christ, at the time of his birth, they were living under the thumb of Rome who had, for all intents and purposes, given up hope in believing that Messiah would actually come. I mean, if you asked them, they would probably say they still believed, but they were living their lives day to day as if nothing would ever change. This is how it is. It's, it's been this way as long as we remember. As far as we know, it'll be this way uh, as far as we can see in the future, at least the rest of our lives, so let's just make the best of it. But God had made a promise, and he absolutely would perform what he had promised. I'm going to take you back for a minute to ancient Galilee. And when I say ancient, I mean before the time of Christ. Galilee was far north of Judea. Uh, and Judea included Bethlehem. Judea included Jerusalem, along other, uh, among other famous sites. Uh, but Galilee is mentioned as far back as Joshua. And more importantly, Isaiah. Isaiah referred to it as Galilee of the Gentiles. It was officially land that was... Get, you remember back in Joshua... Go back to the Exodus, Moses brings the people out, Joshua leads them into the land of promise, and in the early chapters of Joshua, we see him dividing the land among the 12 tribes of Judah. And this was the land that was given to uh, Zebulun and Naphtali, or Naphtali, depending, I don't care how you pronounce it, but you'll know, you know who I'm talking about. And uh, it was already at that time known as a kind of a very cosmopolitan district. All kinds of people lived there. And when you fast forward to when the children, you know, uh, Zebulun and Naphtali and their descendants uh, inherited that land and, and grew in that land, they were among the first who were evicted, who were taken captive uh, by the Assyrians in 722 BC. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, stick around for a while. We won't cover it today, uh, but you'll learn. Uh, but yeah, okay. King Solomon, <laughs> after King Solomon, the kingdom of Israel was divided into the northern kingdom of Israel 
and the southern kingdom of Judah. And the Assyrians captured Israel in 722, and, and that was it. Those ten tribes of the north were never reconstituted. They never moved back in there and occupied that land as a people. And the southern kingdom of Judah fell about 100 years later to the Babylonians. But they maintained their national identity up through 70 years of captivity and then re-inhabited the land under the leadership of Nehemiah and continued to maintain their national identity all the way up to the time of Christ and all the way up till today. It really is a miracle uh, that they have been able to do that. And anyway, the Jews in Galilee were already living among Gentiles at the time of the Assyrian conquest. And it was during this time that Isaiah wrote these famous words. In Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her. By the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, in Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. And then a few verses later, still in Isaiah 9, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This was written to an oppressed and already polluted land who were sitting in darkness 700 years before Christ, walking in darkness, living in darkness. And this promise of the light shining was in Galilee, not in Jerusalem. Now, the Galilee at the time of Christ was separated from Judea, which was down in the south, Judea, again, with Jerusalem and Bethlehem. And then north of Judea, you had Samaria. And then north of Samaria, you had Galilee. It was, there were distinct Jewish settlements and cities, like Nazareth and Capernaum, for instance, but it wasn't as thoroughly Jewish as Judea was. Not by a long shot. The temple was in Jerusalem, remember. The center of Jewish life was in Jerusalem. But even in Jerusalem, they were sitting in darkness. Even in the center of Jewish life, at the time, they were under the thumb of Rome. And again, their great hope was in Messiah, who would set things right once and for all. Now, I'm not going to preach the sermon that makes me cry every time I preach it from Luke 2. And I'm not going to go into details about how Jesus would fulfill his mission in a way that was unexpected, uh, and that the Jewish authorities, the Jewish people, and certainly, especially the Jewish authorities, couldn't really understand. That's usually my Good Friday sermon, where it said when Jesus came to save the world, he went about saving it in a way that the people who were being saved at that moment couldn't understand. They, at the moment he was actually completing that work of salvation, they were at their lowest. They felt he had been defeated and that he couldn't possibly be the Messiah because he wasn't doing what they thought Messiah would do. All I want to focus on this morning is that the arrival of Christ didn't mean instant deliverance for the Jews. It was not an explosive, world-changing event, but it was significant. It was a light on the map. It was a glow on the horizon. 
Prophetically speaking, of course, it was a world-changing event. It was explosive. The long-awaited Savior had indeed come. Salvation, however, had not yet been accomplished. The glow on the horizon for most of them was still the promise. But it was even more exciting to those who were privileged to know of his birth. Meaning, as we discussed last week and we'll continue to touch on in the next week or two, again, and I think this helps us really understand the mindset of the people at the, t- at the time of Jesus' birth, not everybody was a, was a Bible scholar. Not all of them were experts in the prophecies of Daniel, but they were there. They were there to be read. They were there to be understood. And there were certainly people at that time who were actively on the lookout for the arrival of the Messiah, of the Christ, God's anointed, because of the timeline that Daniel had laid out. They knew that the time was right. He could be here any moment. They just didn't know how he would get there or who he was yet. But there were some who were told when Jesus was born that this is him. And think how excited they had to be. We looked at some of it last week. We looked at Joseph and Mary, of course, and how they were told by the angel. And last week we also looked at Simeon. Remember Simeon. And I mentioned last week, let me ask you a question. How old was Simeon? Somebody called me on this. It might have been Lisa. I can't remember who it was. It might have been uh, Lemke. But uh, anyway, I, I, I said very confidently and very authoritatively that he was very old, that he was well advanced in years. Scripture doesn't say that at all, though, it turns out. Did you know that? Did you ever notice that before? Doesn't give us, doesn't tell us he, he could have been a young man. I don't think he was. I think there's evidence that he was older anyway. Uh, it says, what it tells us is that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. It tells us that it had been revealed to him that he wouldn't see death until he had seen Christ. And he said, well, let's just read it again. This is in Luke chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 29. He said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared before the face of all peoples. A light, listen to this, to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. And it's that line, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, that more than anything, to me anyway, suggests that Simeon was old. I think it's implied here that he was otherwise satisfied with the length of his life. But I love that people are paying close attention to details like that and uh, holding my feet to the fire. And the good news is, it doesn't really matter how old he was. It doesn't affect the importance of this proclamation. But notice this, too. I just pointed out that it said it's a, a, a revelation to the Gentiles. also says this, my eyes have seen your salvation. Had they? They'd seen the Savior. Had salvation been accomplished? Had he been to the cross? Had he risen from the grave? No. The work of salvation had not yet been accomplished, except in the superlapsarian sense. How's that for a fun word? And that's the sense that God's plan of salvation was put in place before the fall of man, since Jesus is the lamb slain from before the foundation of the earth. All Simeon had to see was the child, the baby, the person of Christ, to know he had seen God's salvation. All he needed to see was hope on the horizon. 
And Anna, who was old, you know, says she was a widow of 84 years. And most scholars take that to mean that she was an 84-year-old widow, but most scholars also allow for the fact that she could have been a widow for 84 years after being married seven years. So if she got married at age 13, she'd be 104 years old. It's possible. Um, but she was older anyway. If she was 84, she was older. If she was 105, 104, she was uh, 104, she was old. Okay. Now, we referenced her last week, but we didn't actually look. I don't think we actually looked at what she said, so let's read that still in Luke chapter 2, verse 38. And coming in at that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Israel, in, in Jerusalem. Spoke of him. She gave thanks to the Lord. She spoke of him to everybody who was looking for redemption in Jerusalem. What was she pointing to? She wasn't pointing again to the finished work of the cross. Again, redemption had not yet been accomplished. She was simply telling those who looked for hope that hope had arrived. Who else knew? Shepherds knew. Shepherds keeping watch over their flocks by night. And the angel appeared to them, announced the birth of Christ, and then more angels appeared, and they praise God, and they, they, they sing glory to God in the highest. And then look at Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 15. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen as it was told them. I don't think sometimes we pay enough attention to verses 17 and 18. The shepherds took not just the fact that they went and saw Jesus, they went and made it widely known what the angel had told them. And what had he told, what had he told them? The angel told them, there is born unto you this day in the city of David a Savior which is Christ the Lord. Spelled it right out. This is the one you've been waiting for. And all who heard it marveled. Now a little later on, the Magi, wise men from the east, possibly, I would say probably, from Babylon, came to the house where Jesus, Joseph, and Mary were living. Now the story of the Magi is absolutely fascinating to me. I taught on it last year, actually, I think the first Sunday of this year, so I'm not going to preach that message again, not, not yet anyway. I'm not going to go deeply into their story. I just want to point out a couple of things, and one is, the first thing, kind of keeping in the theme of this Gentile, uh, the Galilee of the Gentiles, is that these were Gentiles. These were not Jewish wise men. They were wise men from the east, from Babylon, or Persia, and uh, yet they traveled, and they had come to worship the one who had been born king of the Jews. 
They weren't Jewish, but they traveled to worship the one who was born king of the Jews. Uh, Two is that when Herod heard this, he immediately recognized that they were referring to Christ, the Messiah, because he turned to his advisors to find out where the Christ was supposed to be born. And the third thing is that the Magi actually did worship him. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 11, it says, When they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Might as well just take a couple minutes to point out some of the usual things that might be fresh to some of your ears. Uh, The reason that we say three wise men is because it mentions three gifts. The Bible doesn't say how many there were. Uh, very, very likely more than three because they traveled over a thousand miles through some pretty rough territory. They would have had, a, at the very least, a retinue of security team traveling with them, and there were probably several more than just the three actual magi. And the second is they came to the house he was living in, uh, not the manger. They weren't present at that scene. Uh, he, they were living in a house, and it also uses the, the word child there, which is distinct from the word baby. Uh, and it's likely this was that he was about two years old. And for reasons also that when Herod uh, found out the time they had seen the star, they didn't, they didn't follow the star all the way from Persia, you understand, uh, however long that journey would have taken, several weeks, possibly months. It said they saw his star in the east. This was a sign in the heavens. And then they came to worship him. And then they saw the star appear over the house where he was staying. So um, there's a lot of uh, misunderstanding kind of wrapped up into in in the magi, the you know, the we three kings doesn't say they were kings. They were wise men from the east who came to worship him. And uh, but when Herod inquired of them when they saw the star, as a result of what they told him, he sent soldiers in to kill all the male children two years old and under. So we assume that, that Jesus would have been about two at the visit of the Magi. Anyway, uh, they traveled over a thousand miles in order to worship him because they understood the significance of his birth. It wasn't just Mary and Joseph. Joseph who obeyed, Mary who obeyed, Mary who treasured these things in her heart. And it wasn't just the shepherds who knew. The shepherds told everyone who would listen. There were people hearing this message when Jesus was born. Simeon recognized that Jesus would bring not only glory to Israel, but light and revelation to the Gentiles. And this is another reason uh, Jesus kind of flew under a lot of people's radar. And the whole purpose of his birth and ministry and death and resurrection went over a lot of people's heads is because uh, they were focusing on only half of that prophecy. And, uh, and, and Simeon nailed it, you know. When, when, when Isaiah prophesied, he prophesied that this light would shine on the Gentiles. And Simeon said, uh, a revelation to the Gentiles and glory for your people Israel. The Jews living in Israel at that time, all they could think about was that last part, glory for your people Israel. You are going to restore us to a place where we can not only worship you freely, but we can do it without being, uh, uh, again, under the power and under the oppression of Rome. 
Simeon recognized that. It prophetically spoke it out. And it wasn't just Anna who was able to see something in Jesus, see who he was, and thank God for him. No, what did she do? She spoke to all who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. And it wasn't just people in Jerusalem. The wisest men in the Gentile world recognized this hope on the horizon. In that sense, it can be said that the world was waking up, seeing this strange light appearing and growing on the map. In a little bit, Emmy Houston is going to come up and sing Oh Holy Night, and I guess we can go get her. There's no rush. I still have some other things to say, but now's as good a time to, to fetch her as any. And uh, when she does, I want you to listen closely to the lyrics. It's a beautiful song. I don't know anybody who hates that song, and most people I know love that song. But really listen to those words, especially the first verse part in there that says, long lay the land in sin and error pining. And a little bit later it says, a thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Sorry. <laughs> yonder breaks a new and glorious morn thinking about that glow of hope on the horizon. What's the application for us today? Let me start with this. You know, you probably know this. Maybe you don't, but you're about to. There are many Jews, religious Jews. But, you know, I think when we think about Jews in Israel, uh, we maybe picture a deeply religious people. It's a very, very secular society, just like, you know, a lot of people overseas think all Americans are Christians when... Even a lot of Christians in America aren't what you and I would consider born-again Christians who genuinely know Jesus. We're, we're uh, you know, uh, we're, we're Christians sort of by association. America is, a, is known largely as a Christian nation, so we must be Christians. Well, that's a Jewish nation, they must be Jews. But most of them are not religious Jews. But even some who would consider them religious, they're not deeply orthodox Jews. And I say all that to say that uh, many of them, a, a, a good number of Jews, when you ask them about the Messiah, what they're actually believing at this point is not so much an individual who's going to show up as a messianic age, that God is going to orchestrate world events in such a way that Israel will be secure uh, there'll be peace in Jerusalem. There'll be prosperity in Israel. You know, they've, they've sat and walked and lived in darkness for so long, and having failed to properly identify the Messiah God sent them 2,000 years ago, uh, they've, in a sense, given up hope in the idea of an actual descendant of David coming to set things right. So they're just looking for sort of a golden age. Likewise, there are some Christians who believe that when we talk of the return of Christ, we need to view it not uh, as Jesus coming back to rescue us at the last moment, as it were, but he will first triumph through us, that our mission in this world is to transform it with kindness, service, and love. So, that, that, so far, that's true. But up to the point where the world he steps back into 
if he comes again physically, literally, it's going to be a world that has already surrendered to his lordship. And I can't see that in scripture, no matter how hard I look. It's one of those, I guess, instances of, of tension in scripture because the church is triumphant. He has made us to be more than conquerors, victors. And he has given us a mission to transform the world, right? He's already uh, defeated Satan. We are seated with him in heavenly places. It's a mystery, but while we continue to fill the earth and subdue it, and while millions of people will continue to, to come to Christ, the world he steps into, as I read the Bible, is going to be populated by people who love the darkness and are enemies of Christ and his cross. You know, the believers of the first century, by most accounts, believed that Jesus was going to return in their lifetimes. And this is what helped them endure the hardships. Uh, the hardships that went right along, and that accompanied their faith. And it's super important to remember that God has made great precious promises to you and me. Promises that include healing, protection, abundant provision, deliverance the abundant life, but that we will also have trouble while we are in this world. We'll suffer in this world. Some people, because of that, because of the trouble, have decided it's too much trouble. They've abandoned the faith. Some have decided it's just not worth it. Some have forgotten that this life, no matter how good it is or how bad it is, is nothing compared to to the eternity that awaits us. Some have simply forgotten that he is coming back. But he is. And when he does, this time, it will be an explosive, world-changing event. Because he's not coming back under the radar. Listen to this. I'm going to read you the lyrics, a part of the lyrics of a song called In the First Light. Glad made this, this, uh, this song pretty famous years ago. Uh, the song tells about Jesus' birth and how little the people understood his word, uh, his mission, his ministry. They certainly had a hard time understanding his death. But then it moves to this. But the sadness would be broken as the song of life arose. And the firstborn of creation would ascend and take his throne. He had left it to redeem us, but before his life began, he knew he'd come back, not as a baby, but as the Lord of every man. Hear the angels as they're singing on the morning of his birth. But how much greater will our song be when he comes again to earth, when he comes to rule the earth? When he comes again, he'll come on clouds of glory with his angels and all the saints who have gone before, and every eye will see him. And some people will recoil in terror. 
But those of us who are alive at that time will be caught up to meet him in the air, and thus shall we ever be with the Lord. Meanwhile, for now, we are the light of the world. You know that? Jesus is the light of the world. Yeah, Jesus is the light of the world. What did Jesus say to us? You are the light of the world. Because the same spirit that raised him from the dead, the same spirit that empowered him to do everything he did during his three and a half years of earthly ministry is the spirit that indwells us. He is not, for us, a distant hope. The Holy Spirit makes Jesus known to us and known through us. And when people who are still walking in darkness, and they're all around us, when people who are walking in darkness encounter us, they should experience that sense of hope on the horizon. We are not laboring in darkness. We are walking in the light. But our job is not to bask in that light, relax in that light, as Keith Green's saying, to sleep in the light. We're supposed to be working while it is still day. We are the light that is growing on the map of the world. And all who are drawn to that light will experience true hope, true joy, and true life. Let me say that last part again. We are the light that is growing on the map of the world. And everyone who is drawn to that light will experience true hope, true joy, and true life. But you got to let your light shine. We cannot be dragged down and live as those who are laboring in the darkness. We have that hope. It's not a distant hope on the horizon for us, but it is for them. But we've got to be shining. And the good news is, hate to sound uh, cliche, but the darker it gets in this world, the easier our light should be to see. Emmy, Cheryl, you guys coming up? Let's enjoy this song, and uh, then I will have some closing remarks.
Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Thank you so much. And praise and worship team, I guess you can be making your way up here. I'm not done, but I'm close enough. I want to make something clear. When I talk about us, uh, that it's not hope on the horizon for us. We have that hope. It's a living hope. He is our living hope, right? But it's hope on the horizon for the world and those who are walking in darkness. It is still very much, in a sense, hope on the horizon for us because we know. And I've heard this kind of like, well, you know, if, you, if you're full of the Holy Spirit and you're walking as you should and speaking as you should and enjoying everything God has for you, you should be experiencing heaven on earth. No. You know, we'll experience heaven in heaven. Okay? There ain't going to be any, In this world, you'll have trouble. You can have trouble in heaven. All right? Uh, it's going to be... There's something very, very much to look forward to. And sometimes the trouble is bad. Sometimes it, it's hard for us to imagine. We've all been through something. Uh, but we generally haven't lived places where we have to hide... Uh, have church in secret and, and, and have to worry about whether we're going to be alive the next day because of what we believe, right? And praise God for that. Uh, but there are those who live daily with the hope that Jesus will come back now. That's their heart's cry, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And I feel more and more like that all the time. But no matter how bad things get, because I'm not, I'm not, some of you are going through hard things right now. And no matter how bad things are, no matter how dark things seem, he's coming back. And we ought to be excited because all signs point to the fact that he is coming back soon. Amen? This is not a distant light. It is something that's growing, growing, growing on the horizon. Now, wherever you are, go ahead and stand up with me. Wherever you are in life, there is hope. If you've made the decision to surrender your life to Christ, that hope, again, is in you. And maybe you've lost sight of that. Maybe you've lost your joy, and maybe you need to purpose to go forward with your eyes firmly fixed on that hope. Trusting that he has a plan for you, that he has always had a plan for you, even since before you were saved, and that when you were saved, when you gave your life to Christ, he set you on a path that he had planned for you from the beginning. Maybe you need to make a decision today to recommit your life to Christ who saved you, to embrace the joy that comes from seeing that hope on the horizon, but with genuine, not just on the horizon, but with genuine new life. If you want to do that today, I want to pray with you. And I encourage you to come up here and let me pray with you when they start singing. More importantly, if you've never made that decision, maybe you know the Bible story, the Christmas story, maybe you know about what hope is and who Jesus is, but you have never personally surrendered your life to him. You've never individually, personally availed yourself of that hope. You look at the finished work of Christ. Remember, what we're celebrating at this time of the year is his birth, the fulfillment of all those prophecies and all those promises, and what an extraordinary thing it was. So extraordinary that the angels announced it and those who heard it began to preach it long before Jesus went to the cross. But what he came for ultimately was to die for you and for me. 
to bear our sin and to bear the punishment for our sin so that we could be made righteous. If you've never made that decision, that hope on the horizon is closer than you think. Every single one of us walk and sit in darkness until his light shines on us. He's the one who made us, and he made us for himself. As Augustine wrote, and our hearts are restless until they find our rest in him. I'm going to pray short prayer. And when I'm done praying, they're going to sing. And when they start singing, if you desire to give your life to Christ today or recommit your life to Christ, be bold enough and come and receive that gift. Okay? Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for hope. Even when we don't see it, when we don't see the life that we think uh, ought to be ours, when things aren't going as we wish they would go, and desire them to go. Help us to always remember that you are with us, that you have not lied, that you have come, that you have died, you have risen from the dead, you have ascended to heaven, and you have given us your Holy Spirit to walk in power and walk in a way that pleases you, and that you have promised us abundant life. Help us to walk in the joy of our salvation. Thank you. For the gift of Jesus who makes all of that possible. Father, it's my prayer this morning that if there is anybody, any believer in this room who has lost their joy, lost that sense of hope, that you would restore that to them, restore unto them the joy of your salvation. And grant them this moment, Lord, that they would pursue that relationship with renewed vigor and excitement and a vitality that not only restores them to that place of joy, but restores them to a place of usefulness in your kingdom to draw others to your glorious light. It's also my prayer and the prayer of every believer in this room, I believe, Lord, that if there's anybody in here who has never made that decision, never personally accepted that awesome sacrifice the death of Jesus Christ, his shed blood, and his resurrection, accepted that as payment for their sin, purchase for their salvation, that you would move on them, Lord, as only you can, and grant them the wisdom to see their predicament, and the boldness and the humility to seize the only way that you have made out of that predicament. To confess you the Lord Jesus Christ with their mouth and believe in their heart that you have raised him from the dead. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you come. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.